0: You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. As yoga teachers, we mostly fall into one of these two categories. Either we become a yoga teacher in part because we're naturally flexible, and then we're given internal and external praise for being good at yoga, or we became yoga teachers despite feeling like we didn't quite fit in because we're not as bendy as yoga teachers are expected to be. Both of these experiences illustrate the prevalence of hypermobility in the yoga community, and especially among yoga teachers. It's a fascinating accident of genetics and culture that people who happen to be predisposed to loose ligaments and an increased range of motion in their joints end up overrepresented in a discipline that's really primarily concerned with wisdom, mental focus, and skillful behavior. Hello, yoga teacher. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome back my dear friend, Libby Hinesley, who previously shared about the psoas muscle in episode 29. Libby has been one of my dearest friends ever since we were in yoga teacher training together in 2005. She's a physical therapist and a yoga teacher, most influenced by the tradition of Desikachar. She's also super smart, a fantastic teacher, and a wonderful human. If you've ever wondered how yoga affects bendy people differently from people with a more average range of motion, or how to best support those with hypermobile bodies in your classes... You will love today's conversation. She shared so much helpful information that we created a downloadable cheat sheet. So you don't even have to worry about taking notes. We also talk about a project that Libby and I are collaborating on together that we believe is going to be incredibly helpful to any yoga teacher who wants to learn about anatomy within the context of teaching yoga. Libby is a brilliant human and a gifted teacher and I'm so excited that after all of these years of friendship, I get to introduce her to a wider audience. Let's jump right into the conversation, and I'll see you on the other side where I will talk more about this project that we're collaborating on. I am here with my dear friend, Libby Hinesley, repeat podcast guest. And we are going to talk about, let's start with hypermobility. Sounds good. So glad to be here. I would love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you discovered that you were hypermobile, how you got into yoga. What was that like for you as a hypermobile person? And when did you figure out that you needed to practice differently because of your hypermobility?
1: Um, I got into yoga when I was in college, a little over 20 years ago, and um, my introduction to yoga for the first five years was Iyengar style yoga, and I thought it was pretty cool, and was I was interested in it, and then I moved to a different town, and there was an Ashtanga studio there, and that's when I really fell in love with yoga, because I fell in love with Ashtanga yoga, and started practicing you know, most days of the week, and that's when I started having a lot of yoga-related injuries. Now, prior to that, just in my growing up, I had been a gymnast and had always been really bendy and able to do kind of weird things with my body. And no one ever thought anything about that other than it was really cool because I was really good at party tricks. Um, I did have some injuries along the way. I spent a lot of time, even in high school, in physical therapy for shoulder chronic shoulder subluxations because I was a tennis player. And it never occurred to me that none of the other high schoolers had the same issues as I did. It was just sort of like what I was dealing with, with my shoulders chronically. So fast forward to that time as an Ashtangi, um, I had, again, chronic shoulder injuries kind of all the time. And that's when I developed a pretty Moderate to severe high hamstring strain accompanied by sacroiliac joint pain um, on my left side and hip pain, which would plague me pretty much every single day for about 10 years. Wow! Yeah. And um, yoga always made it worse. (laughs) And yet I kept practicing the same kind of yoga, thinking that I just should do more yoga, right? And that was the message. And so my experience of kind of really getting into yoga in the, both the Ashtanga and then sort of more just the vinyasa, power vinyasa styles of yoga, um, was I was often the recipient of very extreme hands-on assists. There was this one time the teacher literally came over and, uh, well, lie down on top of me in a seated forward fold. And I thought that was kind of weird. I wasn't sure why I needed to go farther because my face was already on my legs (laughs) But you know, I was I was always the bendy one, and it was a little confusing because at that time I was trying to understand what yoga was all about and what part of it felt nourishing for me, my spirit, my mind. Um, and people would always, you know, praise me for being able to do extreme postures, and they acted like I was really good at yoga. And in my mind, it was confusing because I was trying to understand what being good at yoga might mean. And I had a clue that it wasn't about my bendy body. And I also had an awareness that my body had a lot of pain in it all the time. bit hurt every day. And so I didn't know why anyone else would want my body to do yoga in. Um, so fast forward a bunch more years, I. Moved here eventually and did a yoga teacher training with you, with me, <laughs> in the same group and started teaching yoga. And that was about 15 or so years ago. And a few years later, I went to study in India at uh, Desikachar's place, the Krishnamacharya Yoga Manduram. And I was you know, immersed for a month in the tradition of Desikachar, which we could call the Vinayoga lineage and that month there is what turned things around for me, for sure. It changed everything, changed everything about how I understood what yoga was, how I understood different ways to practice asana and how I understood how to get to some deeper experiences in the yoga practice. And I found that the, the techniques that they were teaching with asana practice were absolutely magical for my body. I had never felt a practice that was that strong in my deep inner body. And that was that challenging, because to move as slowly as this type of practice moves, requires a great deal of motor control. And that is one of the hallmarks of hypermobile people is that they don't have it. (laughs) That's really hard. They love momentum. And I was that momentum oriented yogi as well. And, you know, I, uh, the more I understood that bigger goals of yoga over time and accepted that I wanted to use my yoga practice to cultivate those deeper goals, then I became less concerned with getting a workout, like a physical fitness workout in yoga, and instead was willing to slow down and willing to use the practice for different things. And in that path. I found the path to a strong physical practice that actually was perfect for my body. Now, it would be still more years later until I would find out just how extensive my hypermobility issue really was. So uh, especially um, that would involve me having children. So I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. I gave birth to both of them. And very often, pregnancy will exacerbate Symptoms of hypermobility because pregnancy brings on this hormonal laxity because of relaxin and also the expanding ligaments that you know have to move and soften and expand to let the pelvis open so a person can come out of it. Anyway, a lot of times pregnancy will bring up symptoms related to hypermobility in a much bigger way, and that was definitely the case for me. So I've learned a lot just in the last few years and actually now have a clear diagnosis that I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is within the umbrella of what we would call hypermobility spectrum disorders. And um, it includes not only just being very bendy in the joints, but a whole host of other related symptoms that I'd also always had and never knew they were connected to my ability to do party tricks and splits and stuff. But so, what's really classic for a lot of people who have this generalized hypermobility is that they may also have a lot of pain, um, chronic pain, myofascial pain, joint dislocations and subluxations, poor proprioception, they bump into things a lot. But beyond all that, they often have anxiety issues, they have digestive issues, they have. Um, Dizziness a lot and uh, low blood pressure, and things like that, and generally have a hard time of staying regulated within the central nervous system. So, there's a lot of dysautonomia, is the word for that. So, a lot of real interesting multi system involvements that um, are all part of this whole big ball of wax. And then, clinically, in my PT practice, because I generally treat injured yogis, especially injured yoga teachers, I started seeing this pattern that this is actually what I'm treating almost all the time in those people. And they have the same sets of symptoms in their bodies, but they also have these similar kind of seemingly unrelated issues going on in their lives that I've kind of been able to help connect the dots between. And that that has been very empowering and made me even more passionate about this topic um, among yogis.
0: What you're saying is that in your clinical experience, you see a large proportion of the yoga teacher population has this condition. Mm -hmm. And have you heard of any studies or do you know, like, what is the prevalence in the general population? And then have they done any studies about the prevalence with yoga teachers?
1: I have not seen any prevalence studies among yoga teachers. It is... um a project I would love to take on myself at some point. There are some studies out there among dancers and you know students like entering into dance programs. I've seen some studies on that. The general estimate uh, in the general population is like one in I think 2,500 people, and that is an estimate that's made by the um, Ellers Danlos Society which is a fabulous resource. Now, when I say Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, not everyone who has joint hypermobility has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and so I don't want to make that, you know, seem like those things are necessarily the same, but Ehlers-Danlos has 13 different types, but the by far the most common type is hypermobile type. And it's by far the least commonly diagnosed because it's just seems kind of more mild and it's not on a lot of medical practitioners' radars as far as what to look for. But, you know, even people who don't technically qualify for the diagnosis of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, they still may actually have the very same symptoms and they would be treated
0: the very same way. So it's because it's a spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. then the diagnosis is, there's it's squishier. It's squishier.
1: It's just, um, you know, the Ehlers-Danlos hypermobile type is a clinical diagnosis. There isn't a genetic marker yet identified as far as in a blood test, but there's a huge research project underway right now um, to try to determine one. But at this point, there isn't a clear one, so it's there's a really you know, detailed clinical presentation that a person has to meet all these criteria for them to get that diagnosis. But even people who don't meet that criteria may have very similar symptoms and the same, if not more, um, impact on their quality of life. So it's generally treated all in the same way. And the other thing I want to say, though, is there are lots of people out there who are very bendy, very hypermobile, and they actually don't have any trouble. They don't have any pain They don't dislocate. They don't have anxiety necessarily, right? They're kind of fine. They're asymptomatic. And in that case, that's awesome. But they still may be at increased risk for injuries to develop in their yoga practice, depending on how they're practicing. But I just want to make that clear that it's not just that if you're bendy, you're necessarily a big train wreck with all these different things going on. But it's a very common set of
0: symptoms. So people who are bendy but asymptomatic, what should they be paying attention to that they might not be aware that they should think about?
1: Yeah, so someone who's just got a lot of extra joint range of motion, that's what hypermobility means is that someone has kind of more than normal range of motion available at the joint, which indicates that the ligaments that hold the bones together at a joint are little bit kind of floppier. They're just more lax. There's more laxity there and they allow for some more movement. The joint capsule is more lax. And so if they were to push into really extreme end ranges, they are going to be more susceptible to dislocating, especially the shoulder. That's kind of one of the most common dislocations that's going to happen in yoga due to kind of some extreme shoulder positioning and binding and all these things. So I would be careful with that stuff as a Bindi yogi. And um, they're going to be more prone for ligamentous sprains and, you know, tendinous sprains, (laughs) sprains and strains. So where muscles attach to the bone that can get with overstretching, those can get injured. And those are more collagenous tissues that just take a lot longer to heal. So that was, you know, my high hamstring strain and, All the other yogis that I treat, their high hamstring strains that they've had for years, it's a great example of that. That this is a very common yoga injury and this very excessive focus on forward folding, deep forward folds for many years on end tends to lead to that, among other things. And it just takes a long time to heal unless we change our practice. So those are a couple things to look for, just the risk of overstretching, strains and sprains, risk of dislocation, and, but also just the fact that yoga practice could actually be useful for this person. So there's two ways to think about this. On one end of the spectrum, we want to say, what about yoga practice might increase risk of injury? So what should we be careful of? But on the other end of the spectrum is this whole really fascinating list of things that, that are what we should be doing because they are so supportive for the Bindi yogi. It's not just about what to avoid, it's about what do we move towards to really have a supportive practice that builds stability and builds motor control, builds proprioception, and builds um, just boundaries, actually, safe and reasonable boundaries, a sense of containment, where does this body end and the rest of the world begins, because that's a boundary that is very hard for a lot of Bindi people to navigate. It's not clear.
0: And that's interesting because there is this interpretation of yoga philosophy and this saying of we're all one focus on our connectedness or interconnectedness Mm -hmm. that could be really appealing to somebody who has that type of tendency already Mm -hmm. and then maybe not so supportive of them. I totally think that is true beyond the physical level, this is Absolutely. something that goes on, or this is a, a tendency or a, an aspect of the yoga tradition that can be helpful and beneficial for people who have really strong boundaries and over-emphasize boundaries.
1: Absolutely, so this, I think, is a really interesting zone of discussion about hypermobility. And I think it's more than just a cool metaphor. I actually think there's a basis for it. Um, And that is that hypermobile people tend to not have as good proprioception. I mentioned that. They also tend to not have as strong an ability to really feel what they feel. So this quality of interoception, this ability to sense inner sensation. So it can be much harder for them to tune into themselves and understand what actually is going on in their experience, feeling how they feel um, in the context of a central nervous system that is generally a little ramped up a little bit of a sympathetic overdrive that comes along with hypermobility and a little bit of sympathetic kind of dysregulation, which also clouds our ability to just get centered and tune in and feel what we feel. So I think that the issue of you know the boundaries in the body do actually correlate with a bit of a challenge in navigating boundaries in the mind and in interpersonal relationships and all of all those realms. And it has to do with interoception, I think.
0: So when you talk about interoception, are we only talking about sensing internally in a physical way? How do emotions come into the picture like are we talking about emotions as well
1: definitely we're talking about the way that emotions feel in the body Mm -hmm. because emotions are physical sensations and it's at that level that proprioceptive or that interoceptive training can help us understand how we feel emotionally because we start to notice that certain emotional states feel a certain way in the body and then, then we start to be like, oh, I actually feel this way about this life situation, and I never knew it. But now that I'm investigating my embodied experience and the sensations here, I'm starting to learn about my emotional reality. And um, that has definitely been the case for me over the last few years of really, really investigating all of these different um, threads connected to hypermobility. And it's been really profound uh, journey to inward to really learn about my own makeup and understand that it is challenging for me to tune in to how I feel. So I need to do more work with it. And it's just going to be part of what I work on and cultivate these skills so that it becomes easier over time. And it's been interesting to realize that goodness, not everyone has this level of challenge with these things. You know, that's kind of a real revelation for a lot of people to really know this is a little bit unique, this whole set of circumstances. It's not, I don't want to say it's abnormal. It's just a variant on human experience, but it's challenging, especially when you drop into yoga culture, which is, as you said, so much about oneness and, you know, blending. It's almost like a an encouragement for blending you know and certainly openness this concept of openness and and for this yogi she needs to step away from the edge way back away from the edge and work on containment containment is a big big theme
0: so what does a yoga practice that is supportive for
1: a hypermobile yogi look like so good question i think it could look a number of ways but here are some elements that probably really need to be in there. And one is symmetry. Symmetry is key and symmetry doesn't have to do with any particular style. So you could have a more static style. It's more form centric. You could have a more dynamic style. It's more breath centric, but in any case you want your sequence to be highly symmetrical. So I just take for an example, um, you know, I have a long history in the vinyasa sort of style and I will remember going to classes for many years where the sequence was so asymmetrical that it was almost a performance in memory on the part of the teacher, right? So they'll go through this 10, 15 postures on one side. And then I was always wondering, okay, are they going to remember on the other side what we just did? And then I would be so impressed about their memory, right? But so that's a, an example of a highly asymmetrical sequence of postures all on one side and then do all on the other side that is a recipe for tweaky body walking out of that yoga class in particular the lumbosacral relationship because one of the really like most common uh, symptoms of a hypermobile yogi is sacroiliac joint pain you can almost guarantee that this person will either has it now has had it in the past and learned from it like I have or will have it (laughs) at some point. It's just so it's usually where things kind of start to fall apart if they're going to, is that the sacroiliac joint. So the sacroiliac joint being less stable than it would like to be. And by less stable I don't mean it's going to come apart. It's actually a inherently very stable joint. Um, They you know the sacrum doesn't like quote unquote go out because it's a huge weight-bearing joint. But when there's more wobble and when the ligaments that hold the sacrum and the ilium together have been maybe overstretched even further through consistent Yoga practice that emphasizes forward folds, let's say, then we end up with less stability than would be optimal. And we end up with more risk for pelvic obliquities to occur. So, this asymmetry in the pelvis, maybe one side gets rotated forward or backwards and things like that. So, there's a lot of shear strain that then lands across the sacroiliac joint. And that is often where the irritation and the pain comes from. But it's typically a sign of. Um, laxity and lack of stability when we see sacroiliac joint pain. So what the sacroiliac joint loves to feel more stable is it loves symmetry. So that's one thing, symmetry. Even if you have a sequence that you want to do a bunch of different poses on one side and then you want to do one on the other, then after maybe a couple postures, you would do a symmetrical posture to bring it just more frequently returning to symmetry and then do your right side, your left side, symmetry, right side, left side, symmetry, so that you're really weaving in symmetrical poses throughout the sequence. And those are poses that, of course, you just do once and they're done. You don't have to do them on two sides. So the other piece is stability. This person needs stability. This person needs to not do 100 forward folds in one practice. They should do a few, and then they need to focus on a bunch of postures that help build Stability for the body, less emphasis on stretching and more emphasis on um, controlling movement through space. That would be our dynamic stability. So there's slow movement that builds stability. And I mean very slow, very mindful movement that builds stability that's dynamic. Motor control is where that comes in. Being more interested in the part of the movement that is uh, in between start and finish. Okay, so in yoga, we often just get, we know zero and we know 100. And this practitioner needs to get to know what's in between really well and experience it fully all the way there, all the way back. That's, that's the motor control training. The other piece is <clears throat> varying the range of motion. So when we're moving dynamically, A really great practice, excuse me, is to vary the range of motion. So instead of going as far as you can, maybe for a whole practice, you're going 80% of the way and figuring out where that is. That's proprioceptive training. Maybe another day you go 70% and really work with the in-between ranges and practice stopping at different points. That's such excellent training. And then from a more static approach perspective, then we're wanting to do static postures that maybe aren't so focused on being at end range, but give us a practice to or a chance to practice more um, muscular engagement and endurance and strength at different ranges. Because if we practice a posture just at one range all the time, then we're really strong just at that range but we really need to cultivate strength throughout the range. So even if you're doing a static posture, doing it at different angles with different depths is also great practice. And there are a bunch of my favorite postures that are both symmetrical and stability oriented, and they're very accessible. So my two top favorites are bridge pose and locust, especially if you have SI joint pain the bridge and the locust, and the bendy person is definitely going to do the really tallest bridge and the crazy looking locust that looks like a full back bend. and so they need to be cued to not go so far because it's not the point, but they'll still get the stability work. Okay, so we have symmetry, stability, motor control, proprioceptive training, and then the last piece that this person definitely needs is a nice massage for the central nervous system. They need opportunities to just wind it down. So, you know, lots of restorative elements, focus on breath practices that help with calming. Those are really going to be important. A long Shavasana. Yeah. long Shavasana, maybe a restorative pose, even leading up to Shavasana. Some self-massage. Oh my gosh. Thank you for mentioning that because that is a game changer. That is such a game changer. I mean, I know it may not come into a lot of yoga classes, but That is one of the things that absolutely changed my life is when I got familiar with self-massage through um, using tennis balls over the years. And then, you know, it's it's kind of exploded in popularity in recent years. And uh, I got to know it probably a little bit through you and your work with Yoga Up. And I use those balls all the time. And what's great about any brand or type of ball that you apply self-massage with is that the hypermobile person counterintuitively very commonly presents with incredible muscle tension, incredible tension and pain. And they love massage and that's why, and they also love stretching, love it. And things feel tight. And so they want to go stretch it. And what the body is usually screaming for is not stretching more, but, getting stronger but getting an opportunity to release that tension the therapy balls offer that opportunity without requiring a big stretch
0: to end range it's like a win win and they can also get some of that intensity that they're craving
1: oh and they do crave intensity they are sensation junkies and part of that is they they haven't yet developed the skills to detect more subtle sensations. So they need these big sensations to really feel anything. But with practice, they'll start to notice, um, you know, way back before it got really intense, they'll start to feel something. But yes, I mean, I'm a sensation junkie. I love getting huge rushes of sensation on the therapy ball and it helps with release and it helps me relax.
0: We are recording this in the evening and I was working all day long and I was getting super, like my neck and my shoulders and I was starting to get a headache and I was like pushing myself too much. I know I am, I know I am and I have to meet with Libby and record these podcasts and so I took like 20 minutes right before we started recording to do some self-massage. It's incredible how quickly it can have an impact
1: yes it is incredible five minutes to change your life it changes everything it changes the nervous system and by changing the nervous system you change your tissues
0: what else is there anything else that you wish yoga teachers specifically whether they have hypermobility syndrome whether they're super bendy or not but yoga teachers in general, we are going to see a variety of people. What do you wish yoga teachers knew about hypermobility?
1: Well, a few things. I wish that, um, well, that they knew about it, that it's a thing that may actually not be awesome. You know, it may be actually causing a lot of pain and suffering for the practitioner that uh, would not be apparent, you know, from the outside. I mean, no one would ever look at me and even 10, 20 years ago think, Wow, she is a wreck. She's got incredible anxiety, debilitating anxiety, and chronic pain every day. And she's in her 20s. I mean, that was me in my 20s, you know? And now I'm in my 40s and I feel better than ever in terms of pain and mental health and all that. But it's been literally 20 years of all kinds of different weird symptoms inside a body that appears really healthy and normal, right? And very active and really capable. So, it's um, kind of underneath the surface, and I, I would hope that yoga teachers over time could learn just how to spot it in their classes and notice when they see it, and I promise that they're seeing it all the time. That's sort of the tricky thing is that when you're a yoga teacher, hypermobility just starts to look really normal, and then those people that aren't hypermobile are the ones that just seem like extra tight, They're the ones that are abnormal. So just broadening the perspective and start to notice all those elbows and knees that hyperextend and, you know, the people in those really deep stretches that where it looks like it's no big deal to be there. Just kind of get curious about that. And the biggest thing is around languaging that I think could really make a difference in yoga teaching for bendy people is that if the language the yoga teacher is using and the cues have to do with always going farther and finding an edge, you're right, and going deeper, then that is, I mean, number one, it's irrelevant to the overarching goals of yoga, period, for anyone, but for your bendy students, it's absolutely um, putting them at more risk for injury, and it's misleading everyone, of course, about what yoga is interested in, so changing language to be more about inquiry, to invite students to just, like, investigate their body and hey if you're used to going 110% how about try 75% today it could be a mindfulness practice for the whole class you know so i think we can all um, examine our assumptions about what the goals of asana practice are and start to change our language to reflect what we want to um, see happen in asana and what we want to cultivate in the inner experience of the practitioners so that that would be probably the main thing is around languaging and what are we encouraging? What are we praising? Do we continue to praise students who demonstrate more than normal ranges? And then all the other students think they're, you know, less than, they think they're deficient remedial yogis because they can't do these crazy postures. And that's just, that's just a bummer because then everybody just misses the whole boat on yoga and yoga is such an awesome boat not to miss. (laughs) So
0: I totally agree. And I feel like you have downloaded so much great information. I want to share with listeners that we have created a cheat sheet for you. I know that you guys are often walking or driving or doing dishes while you listen, and you probably didn't have time to take notes. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I have to go back and take notes. But then you probably never do. (laughs) So you don't have to worry about that. We created a cheat sheet for you. And you can get it at anatomybites.com slash hypermobility. And you'll also be the first to find out. Libby and I are collaborating on a special project to help yoga teachers understand anatomy in a really fun and accessible way.
1: Yeah, and I'm really, I'm really excited about this collaboration and the project because hypermobility being one topic among so many, you know, that hopefully can help yoga teachers just refine their language and their cueing because they're going to be refining their understanding of what underlies all of those things. And that is just kind of one of the most exciting things for me in my life right now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, anatomy is such a Fascinating topic, right? It's so complex. There's so much to it in when you first dive into it. It can seem very overwhelming. I remember, for example, in our teacher training, Mm -hmm. how I felt zero attraction to the anatomy portion it was presented in a way that it was kind of like, here's yoga over here. Oh, and by the way, I have to teach you some anatomy. So here's some anatomy. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a connection between why are you learning this anatomy? How does it apply to what you're gonna see in the classroom and what you're gonna teach in the classroom? Mm -hmm. So that's why Libby and I are creating this because we want to make more resources to help yoga teachers see how fun anatomy is and Mm -hmm. how relevant it can be. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes on anatomy, you'll know that the word anatomy is a little bit misleading. The word anatomy means to cut apart. So that is, if you just focus on the study of the human body from an anatomical perspective, it can be a little bit disjointed from what we do in yoga, Mm -hmm. but that's not our approach. We're going to be talking about anatomy, biomechanics, cueing, teaching skills in general, and how all of these things overlap.
1: Yeah, totally. And making it fun because I was the same way, you know, in our teacher training, I was very overwhelmed, even learning to label, you know, a few muscles on a diagram that felt really, really hard. And it was many years of struggle. I couldn't remember what flexion and extension were for literally years. And so obviously my training as a physical therapist um, got me way, way, way into the study of anatomy. And And now it's like my favorite thing. And I love helping yoga teachers fall in love with anatomy the way that I have and have it not feel so scary anymore because I was the same way. We all were there.
0: I love it. All right, Libby, thank you so much for your beautiful presence and your awesome, incredibly helpful and uplifting message. Well, thank you so much for having
1: me. It is always a pleasure to be here and to chat with you about things related to yoga and the body. And um, thanks for helping me to kind of shed some light on the Bindi yoga, the Bindi yogis for all of your listeners.
0: And that is what it's like to have a conversation with Libby. So much goodness. I feel incredibly blessed to have her as a friend, and I'm really, really excited about this project we're collaborating on. Here's the down low. We are creating a membership for yoga teachers focused on anatomy, biomechanics, and individual adaptation. When you join, you'll get access to a bite-sized anatomy training each month, a practice to reinforce it and bring it into your body and a live Q and A session where we'll put the teachings into context and dispel any confusion around the topic. At the time of this recording, doors are not yet open. I just wanted to give you guys a little heads up about it. If you want to be the first to hear when the door is open, all you have to do is sign up for the free cheat sheet that summarizes the main points that Libby shared in this episode you can do that at anatomybytes.com hypermobility. If you're listening to this episode at some point in the future, you can check to see whether or not registration is open at anatomybytes.com. Okay, so here's a self-care question for the week. When you participate in continuing education, do you do it from a place of joy and love of learning or a place of not knowing enough? I hope that you'll pay attention to your relationship to continuing education. And if you notice yourself participating out of obligation or a sense of lack, take a pause and check in with your practice. Are you doing more training at the expense of your self-care? Your practice and your teaching experience are the most important components of your ability to show up for your students. It's really important to take continuing education but do it for inspiration and the joy of learning. Often that's not how we treat it. You are 100% worthy of sharing yoga exactly as you are. So make sure that you're making self-care a priority in your life and that the continuing education you choose to participate in is done with that lens of boundaries and understanding what you really need That's all for this week, but I'll be back same time, same place next week with more knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice.